0: million dollars hot dog hello small business warriors I'm Joel Volk and welcome to small Bizcast, where twice a month I explore the lives of small business owners to dig a bit deeper and expose strengths weaknesses ideas and challenges with blemishes and all disruptions caused from crises are something that businesses can do something about most companies don't know what they can do to mitigate those problems Michael Poldy of Poldy Partners will tell us what we need to know As you listen to this interview, as a small business person, you will find comfort in knowing that you are not alone. Hopefully you'll learn something while finding inspiration and ideas from the people I introduced you to, like Michael. Hopefully you'll laugh a little too. Hot dog, it's a wonderful life. We're speaking with CEO and founder of Poldy Resiliency Partners and fellow podcaster Michael Poldy. The podcast is called Risk Stories Podcast, and I was reading the description of it. It's something that you said resonated with me that I thought was really interesting. Just as we listen to how people have confronted risk and have successfully and sometimes not so successfully navigated never-ending and challenging chance. That's gonna. That really does speak of business in general, that there's challenging mazes of chance. I think that was an interesting ballet of words that you used. Just curious, before we get into the nitty gritty of what your company does, I want to talk to you about a couple of different things. I want to talk about what your business is about, what it's like to run a unique business that you don't have a lot of competitors, but you do have a lot of confusion because your business overlaps into different industries. And I'm curious how you navigate that, because I'm assuming that some of the people that could be your best referral sources also look at you as competitors, competition at times. And you probably have a big challenge in educating who your would-be referral sources. I think your personal story is interesting too. So I'm hoping we can get into all of that in the time that we have. Welcome, Michael.
1: Thanks, Joel. I'm excited to be here.
0: Can you tell me a little bit about what resiliency means when it comes to business? The word resiliency.
1: Yeah, In fact, it's very interesting with the pandemic. I've never seen the word resiliency used more than ever. Probably in the last 10 years added up doesn't compete to how often the word resiliency has been used in the last year. And resiliency is simply the ability to respond or bounce back to a traditional normal form. You know, you think about a rubber band, you pull it, you pull it, you pull it, and then comes back and it's to its normal state. Well, that's attributed to its resiliency. But of course, if you pull a rubber band far enough, it's going to break. The word resiliency, it, it really kind of goes back to more of a psychological category, how well people are psychologically resilient to stress in their lives or bad things that could happen to them. And in the last, probably the last 15 years, it's really migrated into the technology in business nomenclature. And so you you take the way I've just described it, and you overlay it with business. And it's the ability of a business to respond and bounce back to a normal state after some level of crisis or dysfunction.
0: The one that comes to mind immediately, well, well, the pandemic, of course, tested that, as you pointed out, but the one that comes to mind that I see all the time are IT networks. Other types of disaster mitigation, do you get involved with besides IT?
1: They're all over the board. I mean, I look at them really in, in a couple of major categories because disasters happen in so many fashions. Even IT disasters aren't always the same. Um, you, you look. I look at them from, and I encourage my clients to look at them as big picture, you know, big animal picture kind of things. For example, what happens if your people aren't available? What happens if your building or facilities aren't available? So, do you what get happens?
0: into that? Do you get into the human resources part? Absolutely. Of re- are you an assistant? Are you? Do you assist in the in a SWOT analysis? Then, when someone does a SWOT analysis—strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats—you get in the threat side of things and help identify the threats and then mitigate those threats. Is that it? Exactly. Exactly.
1: That's that is part part of the program. I mean, everyone thinks about IT threats all the time because that's you see a lot about that in the in the paper, or in the e news. You're constantly seeing someone that you know the computers were down for 24
0: hours, or some
1: airline lost their ability to fly planes because the power was down. I'll tell you what
0: I was thinking of is when earlier this year, Texas got destroyed right the grid went down in texas and at the time i was thinking about all the businesses people were really worried about the people of course and of course we're always worried about that but i was thinking about the, th- the thousands of businesses or millions of businesses that prob- may not have recovered if they if they from that sort of thing and how could they have possibly seen that coming
1: Well, they could have, they could have tested it. I mean, they could have, they could have simulated it out. I mean, we, we do something called a a gaming exercise or a simulation test event. Tabletop test is another name for it, but you get all the business leaders in the room and you get your team, which your team may be your insurance person. It may be your lawyer. It may be your marketing person. So it's not necessarily your we get, we get people to think it's not necessarily the, the direct people that run your business. It's who else do you depend on? And then we run through a scenario. What happens if the power goes down for five days? Right. You can come up with any reason. And, and people are like, well, that'll never happen.
0: That was the first thing that came to my mind is that will never happen. We live in, um, we live in the first world in the 21st century. How could that possibly happen?
1: Yeah, exactly. There, there's there's kind of like the the old norms, the old expected worst thing that ever can happen, and now there's the new worst thing that can happen, and and that's what we're seeing. We're we're seeing that all over the place.
0: So, just to get maybe a bit macabre did did um, did the Texas disruption, the COVID disruption, did that stimulate your business, or are people people still go back? to you know denial that it could ever happen to them
1: the sad story is most people go back into denial and say that's it it will never happen again and unfortunately you know that's historically you can look back at all these major events and and the human nature is well I, i experienced that so for example if you read the book the influenza of 1918 by john barry and if you haven't read it, it's very, it's very interesting. It talks about medical history in the United States and so forth, but then it gets into the pandemic and the pandemic didn't end in, in 1918. It kept going, it kept going to like the late twenties. It just wasn't as robust, but they never found a cure for it. Um, you can close your eyes while you're reading, you know, oxymoron, you know, close your eyes while you're reading the book and you can visualize, you can visualize what happens in, in 1918 exactly what happened in 2020. You know, you had the maskers, the non maskers you had the pol- politicians that uh, denied it, the politicians that supported it, you had a town in Colorado, that if you got off the train, you would, uh,
0: you'd be in prison for five days. Oh, for a quarantine? Yes. Oh, wow.
1: That that town did not no one in that town got sick, by the way. Gotcha. anyway, but anyway, what happened after that? People stopped wearing masks. People went back to their their old ways, and and we see that after major regional disasters, it's very right. common hurricanes. You know, people people get complacent after a few years. If there's no big hurricane, well, why do I need to go get a bunch of plywood to board up my windows?
0: You know, in the year two thousand, my company went from being being all copiers and printers to got very heavily involved with document management and document management technology in two thousand was i mean two thousand one was nine eleven right and so that was like a pivotal moment for us trying to explain to people how many businesses would have in that in those buildings were destroyed because they didn't they 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 could never recover because they lost all of their data and how we had solutions to that and i want to tell you that we could never find a graceful way to give that story out and nor nor did we really convert very many people to it you had a lot of people that uh that understood the concept but doesn't mean they pulled the trigger they a lot of people simply did not do anything about protecting their data in the manner in which we had preparing them we could not get people to move the needle it was denial 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 exactly what you described
1: exactly i mean even you know i, I was involved in a lot of disaster recovery efforts during nine eleven, and and there was a lot of data centers that were in world trade center right I don't know the exact number, but, you know, there were a number of data centers that were all destroyed for major banks. Right. Um, the Bank of New York, for example, um, they lost their data center. People don't realize how uh, you know close to the edge the U.S. financial system really was because of the banking, banking data centers that were destroyed mm-hmm. at 9-11, but because of actually mere luck. A lot of those, the data elements, the storage was stored off in, in New Jersey. And mm-hmm. a lot of these data centers were able to be rebuilt very quickly. And, and mm-hmm. some of them were built, rebuilt almost from scratch.
0: So is redundancy, what you're describing as redundancy, a part of what you do?
1: Well, what we look at is we talk to clients and we help gauge their appetite for risk. And the way I look at it is almost like a seesaw. Risk on one side and budget on the
0: other. That's funny. I thought you were going to say risk. I for sure thought you were going to say risk and impact.
1: Right. No, risk. Oh, that's and budget. Interesting. interesting. And the reason for that is, you know, it's kind of like if you could fix all your problems for a mil- if, big company, if you could fix all your problems for a million dollars, you would do it. You know, if it costs, uh, you know, if it costs $10 million, you wouldn't do it. You know, so it's it's one of those. The more money that you spend. You know, the budget side of the seesaw goes up and the risk side goes down. As you reduce your budget, if I only spend, you know, maybe a better example is a dollar. If I only spend a dollar <laughs> to protect my risk, you know, I have a lot of risk out there. Sure. Because I'm not protecting anything. And so what we encourage companies to do is figure out what your budget is, figure out how much you're going to lose if you're whatever, if your technology goes down and figure out a mean, a, um, you know, a midpoint that makes sense for you. So you are balancing the amount of money you spend with your amount of protection you have. Right. But sometimes it's not, it's not about, it's not even a lot of money. So for example, you asked me earlier, what other types of risk, you know, it's not just it technology. I had a, uh, a consultant come, come to me and, and say, well, this company just lost their 45 year old founder. Wow. And this person was not only was the, the brains of the business, all the intellectual property and intellectual capabilities of the business was tied up into this person, even though it was a 50 person company. And, and so they were like, what do we do? And it's like, well, it's kind of late now. Right. Um, you know, you got a lot of problems that you you need to work through, but that's, that is part of the risk analysis is you look at, okay, what happens if you lose these people? So we'll go into a. I And I mentioned a simulation earlier you have 10 people in a room and you do. So so I'll do something very simple, hold up, you know, who's got an AT&T phone, who's got a Verizon phone, who's got a T-Mobile phone. And then I have a, I have the, I write the names down, put them in a hat, walk over to someone say, pick one of these and they pick it out of the hat and they say AT&T. Okay. Anyone who has an AT&T phone, turn it off. You have no phone access for the rest of this experience. Right. You know, and people are like, you know, they're like shocked. Right. That never happens. Yeah, it's interesting. never happen. It never happens until a guy in Nashville explodes a van outside an AT and T signal center, and you have AT and T down, Verizon down, and T Mobile down in four states.
0: Right. Uh, when did that happen?
1: It happened in January of this year. This year. Wow.
0: We're going to take a short break and be right back. You may remember Janice Miller of Miller Haga Law Group from our episode, Saving Nigel in season one. Miller Haga supports businesses of all sizes from large to small. No matter what phase your business is in, from startup to wind down, Miller Haga Law Group acts as your innovative general counsel. Their experienced team of lawyers will keep the gears of your business turning. If you wanna minimize your liability while maximizing your profits with competent and efficient counsel, contact MillerHaga.com for more information. That's H A G A H-A-G-A.com. Small BizCast is proud to support Fit for the Cause. Fit for the Cause is the leading organization in fitness for low income and special needs communities. Founded in response to the national health crisis, Fit for the Cause has used licensed and COVID conscious trainers to keep their members active, even during the pandemic. Offering physical training, nutrition, and a variety of classes, members benefit from the same resources given to special Olympic athletes. So stay active now by going to www.fitforthecause.org. That's fit, the numeral four, thecause.org. Document technology continues to be a challenge for businesses as they go back and forth from working remotely to working in-house. One of the challenges facing management is that documents need to be shared. They also need to be secured. There's privacy issues, there's access issues. Those are the types of things that keep people up at night. Mercury Document Imaging has been solving problems like these since 1982. We are in the unique position to leverage our years of experience with our tremendous resources to solve this and other similar problems. We do it economically. More importantly, we do it efficiently. So if you have issues that you'd like us to help with, please call 818-782-1221 or go to mercurydoc.com, M-E-R-C-U-R-Y-D-O-C.com. We are back. I'm Joel Volk and this is Small BizCast and we're listening to Michael Poldy of Poldy Partners teach us what we need to do in order to mitigate problems when disruption happens. So if I'm a company that is weighing my risk versus the budget to fix my risks, like you described. And not, I decide, I opt against solving all of my problems because of budget. Because I've gone through this due diligence process and made a conscious decision not to solve my problems. If my customer's data is breached, am I now liable for that? Damages to my customers? Might I buy myself multiple lawsuits from my multiple clients Absolutely. who have multiple problems? Absolutely. So that's got to be part of the weighing of the risk. Then
1: that's that's exactly right. It's what's the what's the exposure to your business? How how much are you willing to to take on? And it's not just if you do it. Here's a, a new wrinkle. I mean, first of all, every state has a different hacking law or a different privacy law. California has probably most, one of the most stringent of, of all 50 states in both categories, but there's laws in both states. So in all 50 states. So depending on what state you do business in, you may have to respond differently, but here's where it gets complicated. It's no longer what happens if, if my business gets hacked, what if I have a partner and I'm doing right. business with this partner and they get something happens to them. hmm then what is my exposure? And for a long time, um, people have been, you know, it's like one hand away. It's like, well, I can't be touched. You know, it was, it was Amazon that, that got, got hacked. It wasn't me. And, and the reality is, is that is now changing. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, there was a comp, there is a company, it's called black Bod. They're out of Charleston, South Carolina. They provide donation services, software as a service to come educational And nonprofits that are looking to collect money. So you donate to your university of choice. It's not the university that's actually collecting the money. It's this bot company that has thrown up a front end that has your university name, and they collect the money and they collect your credit card and your personal information. Well, they got ransomware hit pretty bad. Um, they they handled it, I think they handled it very, very poorly. They're now facing, I don't know, 21, 24 different class action lawsuits. Class action. United, class action lawsuits. Billion wow. they're a billion dollars in revenue, by the way. Um, and then um, in January, I read in some uh, like a HIPAA journal a, a children's hospital in San Diego called I think they're pronounced Raddies or Radies Children's Hospital, R A D Y. Uh, the largest children's hospital in the state of California based on admissions. They got sued by one of their stakeholders for not taking the proper due diligence in making sure that the Blackbaud company was properly secured.
0: So the charity itself is party to a lawsuit because the partner they chose to run their charity finances did not protect themselves properly. What could that charity have done differently?
1: Well, a couple of things. One, uh, hopefully, they have an insurance policy. That's 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 a you know first step. right. But but really, what what they should be doing is they should be taking a certain level of due diligence and understanding what their partners are doing. For example, something called uh, business continuity or resiliency questionnaires, where you can go to a company and you can ask them a series of you know, 50, 50, I'll make it up 50 questions. We we work with companies in answering those questionnaires as well as putting them mm-hmm. together. Um, but essentially you do due diligence. You understand what, how they currently run their environment. And there are things like, do you test your resiliency program? Do you have a cybersecurity program? I'd like to see an, I'd like to see a report. Um, how often does your board of directors review these types of, uh, your, your types of tests and, uh, your business results? Do you do an IT disaster recovery program? Again, I want to see and review those results. Um, and then the, the other thing, and this is probably more important, because it really pushes the client, it pushes the client, it really pushes these companies to do the right thing. you put it in a contract? Right. When you're negotiating contracts, with you make sure you negotiate service levels for response, and you also negotiate uh, service levels and response associated with business resiliency, cybersecurity, it disaster recovery, and you make sure that it's contractually in there. So when something like this happens, you effectively, it's not necessarily a get out of jail free card, but you effectively um, now can transition and involve the company that created the most harm.
0: Right. So you're, you're in the position to ask the questions And then scrutinize the answers, but you're not in the position to validate the answers. So if they, if they, your vendor doesn't perform, you have, you won't know till after there's a disaster.
1: Well, and that's what the audits are for. That's what's the, the tests and, and, you know, the test results and the seal of approval. And I mean, it's kind of like, it's like Sarbanes-Oxley. What Sarbanes-Oxley is for accounting and financial constraints, Mm -hmm. you know, this is for, your security and your resiliency constraint. Unfortunately, there's no, you know, Sarbanes Oxley equivalent or national policy or, or, you know, some some level of scrutiny or certification that every company can go for. It's coming so, to that, though. It will so, happen.
0: So is yours is yours the company that does the audit? Then is that what you do?
1: Uh, that is one of the things we do. We absolutely go in there and we audit companies. And not only do we audit companies from an IT point of view, but we also go in and look at companies from an employee safety point of view. You know, you mentioned earlier, like, oh, what else is there from, from IT? And, you know, I mentioned about the founder issue. Well, right. you, you look at these companies that aren't necessarily IT Driven, they're they you know they may be you know IT is obviously a key part of it. I mean, like for example, uh, beer company Molson Coors gets cyber attacked a, a couple of months ago, and you know all their distributors were 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 shut down. They couldn't get anything. But you know those companies are they're they're predominantly human human based, human engineered, and human run. So employee safety is huge. Mm-hmm. And if they're not taking care, if they don't have the, they're not following, for example, OSHA's 16 guidelines for protecting their business against COVID-19, or they're not, uh, you know, conforming to the, uh, what's it called, national duty clause, which essentially, you know, requires them to create a safe, safe workplace for people. You know, that that's another exposure that they can have to their business. That could shut them down or cause some sort of disruption.
0: So how often should a, first of all, how often should a company do a resiliency audit?
1: Well, I think it depends on a number of things. One, their budget. I mean, look, (laughs) you know, a lot of companies aren't going to hire people just to do this. In fact, most companies today, even the big companies, even if you look at the multi-billion dollar global national companies, they don't have a lot of dedicated people to do this. Right. You know, they may have a lot of dedicated security people. And a lot of dedicated IT people, but there's no one dedicated really to fly over all these things. It's, mm-hmm. it's a lot of his other duties as assigned. And, and so to answer your question a little more specifically, at least annually.
0: So once a year. And so how long does an audit take for a typical, I mean, is there, there's no such thing as a typical company, but how long... How long does it, an audit take then?
1: It, it, it's one of those. It, it totally depends. And it depends on a number of things. It depends on, you know, the size of the company. What do they want audited? I mean, you're not going to have someone go in and and read, uh, you know, 500 pages of, of plans. I mean, that'll take right. take weeks. It's usually you go in there and you have questionnaire type format. It's hit the high points and then you drill down on a few items. You know, you hit some, you know, does this company, first of all, is a company big enough, they have their own auditors, in which case then they probably have already done something along these lines, right, you know, they might not be the experts, but they'll have some insight, uh, smaller companies that you know, the questions will be really simple. You know, have you if you run a IT disaster recovery test? Have you have if your cybersecurity people have they given you a report of what your current exposures are? Um, have you run a business continuity test to see what happens if certain, you know, I'll make it up, you know, if you have 10 people in your company, if three people aren't there, and picked at random, how does your company perform, you know, a lot of times, because, quite frankly, and unfortunately, because most people don't do anything. Um, they have business continuity plans, they'll have, they'll say their managed service provider, right. protects my data. But the reality is, is they haven't checked it. So yeah. a lot of times these audits, they're not very long. Right, because you can get in by asking a handful of questions and in usually a few hours to the right people, you find out really quickly where the exposures are in the business
0: so I would imagine that your firm would be brought in as part of the due diligence from someone doing an m and a event for instance
1: they should i mean I, and i have and I have been brought in on m a deals um, I, i've I've worked on a number of m a deals throughout my career, but the reality is most m a deals don't provide any real inspection other than, you know, where are they running? How much do we pay? And uh, who are the people that are the IT people? And as soon as we buy them, we're firing them because we're going inter- <laughs> to right. integrate their their IT into our IT.
0: What's the floor? What's the smallest company that you can be effective for?
1: To be honest with you, I could be effective for a three-person law firm. Mm-hmm. I mean, the conversation is much quicker
0: right you yeah have the,
1: conver- the conversation is about an hour hour long and here's how it goes we have a guy that we call that handles our it okay well let me talk to the guy and you say do you have a backup plan yes or no where are the offsite backups when was the last time you recovered it
0: well that's technology but i'm thinking in terms of you know, you mentioned earlier a, a firm where you have a forty-five-year-old founder that that dies unexpectedly, and I could see that being in a three-person f- firm very easily, where you have one person who has all the institutional knowledge of the practice. He knows that person. Yeah, exactly. He or she yeah, knows yeah. where where the passwords are and where the you know all all the you know the the the, the mission critical things you need from time to time. Yeah, how I mean, get, how do you create redundancy in that environment? How do you create a plan for? succession, I think about it in terms of, you know, my own, my own marriage, just, just the partnership of my marriage, you know, if something happens to my wife or me, will the other person know how to access the stuff that we do collectively, right? I mean, I assume that I assume that carries forth to that's
1: exactly small right. businesses as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the dynamics are a lot different. You know, when you're looking at a two or three person firm versus a minimum, I mean, again, you know, thinking about your question a little bit, it's it's really 25 million, Re- annual revenue mm-hmm. is probably the floor area because the, that's a company they have usually, you know, in between 20 and 40 employees and, and, you know, they have a certain decent uh, bank of bill and they're, you know, they, they've, they're building lift and they've got some growth opportunities to their business. Right. And and that $25 million business is looking to be a $50 million business within two to three years. So, you know, they're, they're the kind of like the starting place there, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, it's multiple different areas, but again, as you talk to these companies, you find out very quickly where they have been focusing, right. And where they haven't. And obviously if they haven't been focusing on areas, you you easily just say, well, okay, we don't have to investigate that any further. (laughs) we know that's a whole.
0: Let's talk about you uh, personally a little bit, because I think you're an interesting person. How did you get started in this field? What's your background? How long have you been doing it? What got you interested? in? I want to hear the whole story.
1: I went to uh, Clemson University and got a computer science degree. So I, uh, I grew up in the 70s. And just when you had Radio Shack with the TRS 80s and the pet computer, and you had the movies like War Games and and, and you had Kevin Mitnick was the telephone hacker who would go up to a phone with a quarter and you could make a free long distance phone call. And I just found all that super, super fascinating. And so I found a college and there weren't there many in 1978 and 79 that gave computer science degrees. You had like MIT and Carnegie Mellon and Harvard and Stanford. And, and um, I coincidentally found one in, in the Southeast United States where I was living, and so I went there and I studied computers and I got to work at the National Security Agency. I got to work at Martin Marietta Data Systems, where they you know, built a uh, purging two nuclear tip short-range uh, missile. And I got to walk the floor and watch them build this thing and the Apache laser-guided targeting system used on the Apache helicopter. 16 and and so that's really got me hooked and after a few years in aerospace I decided I'd rather be in banking and financial because that, that had a much longer lifespan than aerospace mm-hmm. again if you remember back to the go-go defense years of the Reagan administration and um so I went into banking and when I was in banking I ran data centers and I got to experience a lot of uh a lot of disasters and I got to experience er, lightning strikes and I got to hear experience floods and hurricanes and uh one hurricane went to South Florida and uh the only thing left of the branch in Homestead Florida was the bank vault <laughs> the entire branch was wiped clean and so what year um, is this you know it, it was just very fascinating just the way a bank ran mm. uh that was like I want to say it's like in 92 so in 92 d- that, d- early d- 90s
0: did were there did the banks have redundancy in, uh, designed into their absolutely preparedness? They did absolutely, but right. but
1: absolutely, absolutely. But the bank, but first of all, there wasn't a lot of laws. So the banks in the United States are regulated by the FFIC, the um, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, and so they go to these banks and they say, okay, you have to do these things to protect your data. You can't be down for more than three days in a row. Banks would would pivot to how can I build a banking infrastructure so I'm not down more than the banks that you can't be down for a certain number of days. And back then in the the 80s and 90s, it was three days. The Banks could not be down for more than 72 hours. Expensive Um, It was very difficult technology wise to move large amounts of data long distance. So everything was taped back up Mm -hmm. and everything was primarily taped in the data center. And then someone would put the tape on a truck and they would drive it 30 miles away or 10 (laughs) miles away and they would store the tape for a week. And then uh, every day the truck would come with a new route of tapes. And then after day seven, that you know, the tape that went there on Monday, the previous Monday was coming back to go back into the rotation. Like to go then they got around. more sophisticated. They did something called electronic. Yeah, exactly. And they would do, we would, we would, and we did this because, you know, fortunately we, we invested a lot of money and we went from a, I'll say a technology lagger to a technology leader by implementing things such as electronic vaulting of tape where we'd electronically move data. And then it was duplication of disk data and then it got to be very high availability infrastructures so you would have uh, multiple computers within 10 miles apart or up to 100 miles apart the data was essentially duplicated in both locations but that was very very expensive you only had a handful of companies you know the biggest banks in the united states would do that the biggest banks in in asia and europe they would do those how but, were they
0: transferring? Were they using satellites? What, what were they no. using?
1: No, everything was was using high speed uh, high speed networks.
0: Networks. So it was hardwired, basically.
1: Yeah, it was hardwired point to point connections because there was no internet.
0: Right. Tight of
1: communications.
0: Yeah, think about that. that's we're talking. Was that twenty years ago, right? Thirty years ago. Guess, Thirty years right? ago. Yeah, yeah right, exactly. Right. It was, it was right. a long time ago. So right. anyway,
1: so so I got. I was very involved with implementing and building these these infrastructures, and and I used to write and speak uh, internationally on on different techniques that we would use to protect these infrastructures. And I also was involved in, you know, a lot of outages, like for mm-hmm. example. Uninterruptible power sources. Um, you know all these data centers, cloud data centers. You know the you know, cloud. Cl- the cloud is nothing but very fancy, big, large data centers. Sure. And and all these data centers are have lots of power going into them, and they are all run through what's called an uninterruptible power source. Well, if something happens to this uninterruptible power source, and it is interruptible um, without the right maintenance and the right care and feeding, uh, your data center goes down. Um, you know, you had things like the fuel filters on the diesel generators. If those get clogged, your data center will go down. Um, you know, we had, we had the, the NASDAQ was brought down several times mm-hmm. by a squirrel.
0: It's Does a great it's, do great you think it was story. the same squirrel?
1: Yeah, I don't think so. the the, C, the CEO of, of NASDAQ at the time had had a I don't know if it's the squirrel, but had a squirrel mounted in his office <laughs> to remind him of the experience.
0: The very last big typewriter deal I did with um, I think it was Bank of America or one of or might have been first interstate bank, but they bought several typewriters in the event that Y2k would come and crashed their whole network. They, they, right. they were Everybody was panicked over Y2K, and I think I sold hundreds of machines to them, <laughs> too,
1: well, that I've never heard. got
0: used. I'm sure they all went from the warehouse to getting scrapped they never got it's, used because because everybody that, that was going to be their backup plan was to have typewriters dispatched
1: well it's actually a good a good backup plan i mean yeah. to be to be honest with you worked I'm out sure. well for me yeah exactly <laughs> I, I i have a I have an old typewriter <laughs> i i used it today you know but but the reality is sometimes the old solutions are the solutions that work sure where my history started is just running these data centers and seeing how this technology worked and getting involved in a lot of really cool leading edge stuff that was being developed by a number of manufacturing houses like IBM, like Hitachi data systems, like EMC, like Oracle, like storage technology. Ultimately, got to go work for IBM and I got to be with, I mean, it was really cool working with these people that own the patents on a lot of these technologies that people, you know, take for granted every day.
0: Yes, we do. And so how did you, how long ago did you start your business?
1: So I started my business almost a year ago. Oh,
0: I was only a year old. Oh, yeah. I see. And was there an event that, that gave you the, some event that triggered it? Did you have some well, project I've, you took over that gave you that or?
1: No, I, I've always been thinking. I mean, I've run lots of businesses for IBM and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a small business in IBM is a hundred million dollars. So, yeah. you know, I, I was fortunate enough to run a bunch of, of small, small and medium sized businesses. Right. And I've always just wanted to run my own show.
0: So what, what's, what surprise did you learn after going into business for yourself for the first time?
1: It is hard to generate sales.
0: So is it filling the pipeline that's hard or is it hard converting the sale, the opportunities to actual clients?
1: Uh, It's actually filling, filling the pipe for me, filling the pipeline is surprisingly the hardest element here. Hmm. Um, I mean, I can get a lot of, a lot of leads. Generating leads is not a problem, but converting leads into qualified leads into uh, you know people who actually want to spend money and invest that's that's the hard part because a lot of people are um, especially in the pandemic I mean you know starting starting a business in the in the middle of the pandemic even though I know a lot of companies are doing very well um, you know there are a lot of companies that are very conservative sure especially when it comes to risk, you know, after they've just retooled their entire business to run remotely.
0: Your natural referral sources, I assume, would be people in the IT world, but they probably also perceive you as a competitor. So how do you how do you solve that?
1: Well I, th- I think as you said it earlier, it's not necessarily that you know the, there's a perception that I'm a competitor, but they also recognize that it's it's not a it's not a direct competitor. So for example, I'm not doing managed services. I'm right. not doing I'm not doing uh Cybersecurity forensics and cybersecurity surveillance, and I don't have a, ne- a network operating center. Um, you know, so
0: so you, so you become a, a an adjunct to them. Exactly. I would assume. you have to get them speaking though in your language because when they're speaking to their potential clients, they're talking about risk all the time. I can tell you that's the talk track for. It, conversation. Managed IT services is always, you know, it's kind of like selling insurance. What happens if your house burns down? You got it, you know, so you have to f- put a little fear in order to sell managed IT services because it's all about preventing the disaster. It, and then, exactly. And then, so they're talking They're talking about this already. How do you get them to then leverage that conversation into, let's take a 30,000 30, foot view at your situation and bring in a real expert that can identify all of your risks. And then we can manage those risks low hanging fruit first and the harder stuff last how do how do you get them to that place well it goes back
1: to the spend you know many many companies and clients that I speak with and I think this is why it's so hard is they're like well I have my managed service provider who's doing my IT backups and I have my cybersecurity firm who's doing my monitoring my network And I lean on them and that's, and then it goes back to the spend, which is, well, you know what? I've, I've already spent all my money.
0: The decision to use your firm then must be made in the C-suite. It's got to be right. So you need to be, am I, am I right that you need to be around CFOs?
1: It's CFOs, COOs, COOs, CIOs that are concerned of their, I mean, I spoke to a CIO a couple of months ago from a multi-billion dollar uh, beverage distribution firm. And his biggest fear was, ransomware and getting as a privately held company and getting the owners of the company to recognize mm-hmm. that you know he's losing sleep at night because you know this particular incident could could shut us down and what are we going to do about it and you know so some of it is is really also to just communicating you know the level of risk avoidance you know that the risk does not go away because you're not paying attention to it or you're not you know putting it on a on a you know, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities and threats chart and and saying, you know, it's, it's not on the chart. So therefore, it's not a concern. Right.
0: That's a big challenge. I assume it's going to be a lot of education to the public.
1: It is. a It is a lot of education. And, and unfortunately, too many people wait until they see it happen to someone else.
0: Right. It's going to have to take a black swan event where you have one competitor that survives and the other competitor that goes down for them to see that had I managed this.
1: Uh, to be honest with you, it takes a, a multiple black swan events because again, you look at the incident in Texas, and you know how many companies take you know have taken action. In fact, I had a room of a bunch of people. I was on a a call, a networking call, and I asked in in a session, and I said, "Okay, everyone, w- watch what happened to those poor people in Texas." Oh yeah, that was really bad. Okay, who has done anything? <laughs> to protect their personal house and their family right from it happening to them
0: yeah please don't you ask know, me that question if you don't mind yeah 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 exactly <laughs> so um i think we should define what a black swan event is though do you mind going sure forward?
1: so so in the wild it's very rare to seen a uh, to see a black swan and and that's what a black swan event is it's an event that is uh it's something that's never occurred in the uh, field i actually have a have a great quote i want to i want to share Okay, And uh, and I have to I have to look this up because it's such a it's such a good it's such a good quote. So the quote is from this woman named Alice Hill and Alice Hill. uh, She was a a state and federal judge uh, here in Los Angeles, actually. And um, and she then served as the uh, resiliency uh, chair for the Department of Homeland Security in the Obama administration. And um, she she came out with this great quote, and it's we have to look at black swans as past extremes and future extremes and again looking back at the texas thing you know a lot of people said well you know that that event is so extreme it never happened before well the reality is it has it did happen it happened two times before and uh it happened like in the late 80s or early 90s and it happened again in around i think 2011
0: really that ha- how come i don't remember this this is interesting.
1: yeah yeah there's a um uh, in fact if you if you go to my website and look at my blogs I have a blog on what we can learn from the Texas power outage and and, and I have the reference there
0: okay I'll have and, that in the show notes then so for the listeners who want to go there the show notes will have the web address and I'll have a link to that
1: yeah and there's a and it's it says specifically and it talks about the exact some of the things that failed in January, the exact same things that failed in the last two events. And they had been called out in the Texas power company in ERCOT elected not to spend any money to fix any of those things. And which brings me back to the quote, past extremes versus future extremes. So black swans, you you have to look forward. You have to look at the extremes and really play it forward Mm -hmm. to really make them valuable. And too many people um, have been considering black swans to be something that quite frankly, has has already happened or has happened with enough frequency where it's like it's no longer a black swan.
0: That's really interesting. I got to think that the the Texas company, ERCOT, then has got to be buying themselves some real lawsuits because Uh, because they've opted not to do anything.
1: The lawsuits are everywhere. And and here's what people also need to recognize is um, people lose their jobs. There's a lot of people that resigned over this or were fired. And quite frankly, that's what happens Every time you go look at one of these major disasters that you read about because a company wasn't properly prepared, right? You kind of linger on a month or two months later and figure out who's who's being replaced at the company. You know, is the CEO losing his job? Is the CIO losing his job? Is the chief financial officer losing their job? Someone loses their job every time.
0: Right. So you're saying it's self-preservation to employ.
1: That's that is ex- exactly That's what right. Gotcha. I, that is exactly right. And you can yeah. see this and it's, and it's repeated. It's repeated. Right. It's, it's, you can see this historically again and again and again.
0: Well, it makes sense. I mean, if the C-suite's job is to preserve the future um, of the company, help it grow, help on, on all levels, then certainly risk mitigation has to be a big part of that equation. And, um, if this last year of the pandemic disruption didn't teach us anything, this has to be what it taught us. Uh, There's so many lessons to be learned from it, but this has got to be from a business perspective, what it's taught us. I can tell you that um, I've seen a lot of companies in my industry, the document technology world, uh, really falter. And I've seen, um, our company really do well. And it had a lot to do with the forward thinking of the leadership of our, of our company. And I'm really impressed by what I've seen. I've been telling, you know, I've been telling the people that I work with all the time now because I hear from a lot of form of competitors, friendly competitors who are, who spent most of the time trying to figure out what to do. And, um, and certainly having a team of forward thinking people who could pivot at the right time, helped dramatically, uh, helped our success to be sure. But uh, not everybody has that talent pool. Usually smaller companies, especially have to struggle to get to solve it. Right.
1: right. Or they have to find the right person or the right people right. who can step in for that short period of time. And, and, and that's the whole way I've, I approach risk and I advise companies to approach risk. Is mm-hmm. look, it's not something that you have to divert, you know, a core part of your business, uh, you know, away from your clients and your, your money-making business part of your operation, but, but really it's an evolutionary process where you take a little bit, you take a few steps every year and you increase and improve your ability to mitigate and manage risk. And the more you, more steps you take. And as long as you have a strategy in place and an action plan and the executive team supports it, then, you know, when your time comes, you'll, you know, hopefully you'll just skate right by and you'll avoid the problem altogether.
0: No, it's fascinating. You're a fascinating person, which brings me to the last thing I want to talk about. Now to the listeners, if you're listening still, you like podcasts. So uh, Michael, tell us about your podcast and how they can listen to you.
1: Sure. So my podcast is called Risk Stories. And as you mentioned at the beginning, we we look at how people risk in their lives. And it could be, uh, there's, there's definitely the IT technology side of that, simply because that's, that's my history, and, and I love the technology part of it. But we also talk about uh, personal protection. We talk about uh, government and politic issues. We've talked about mental health. Uh, you know, people don't, don't play enough, uh, I think they don't pay enough interest and in, in energy into the whole mental health aspect. I mean, again, you know, the number of people who have been influenced and affected by by the pandemic, I mean, then the, uh, the the numbers of uh, people with depression and suicide have been staggering in uh, in 2020 and 2021. Um, but but there's some really great there's some really great stories. I interviewed this uh, one gentleman who's the CEO of a company called Global Guardian, and they do uh, they started out doing executive detail protection. It's run by. uh guys ex uh, like special forces or special operations right you know and uh, you know he had you know the great stories of it's it's like a real james bond kind of thing you know oh, really? i got a plane i got a plane on the tarmac in tel aviv waiting to get the go ahead so we can you know extricate these guys out of their you know, for whatever reason. And then he talks about a story of, well, we're trying to get these people across the border from Venezuela into Colombia, And then we find out that Colombia's has closed the border and we're, you know, do we rush the border and you know, everyone's got guns.
0: Wow. Wow. I haven't had any stories like that on my podcast. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it gets exciting.
1: There was a, a woman recently, she was an ex CIA analyst. She was an intelligence analyst. Yeah. And uh, um, she, uh, uh, she, she, was at langley for about eight or nine years and then she served in iraq she's got some amazing stories of what she obviously she's not telling her classified stories but still you
0: know you have this uh
1: this young woman cia analyst and what typically is a old man's game it's a good conversation
0: that's great, Michael. I really want to thank you. I think you're a fascinating guest, and I, I'll bet you're a great podcast host. I'm going to check out your podcast, and uh, hope hope my uh, listeners do too. Because we're a small community of good people. There's only 100 million podcasts out there, but there's only a few good ones, right? Exactly, so. like like yours and mine. <laughs> Michael, thanks a million. I think you did a great job. There's so much here to unpack, and I think you give us food for thought, and maybe even scared a few people. And I know you'll be getting lots of calls from people that listen to us. Hey, audience members, you guys are so helpful to me. You give us feedback and ideas and it helps us grow the show. And for those of you that share our shows to your social media, it's really helpful as well. Please keep doing that. If you'd like to give us a review, go to wherever you get your podcasts and give us five stars if you don't mind. And if you want to give us less, I understand, but give us five stars anyway. Please remember our sponsors, Miller Haga Law Group and Mercury Document Imaging. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Hot dog, it's a wonderful life. Next on Small BizCast, Michael Gordon of Sandler Sales. He's gonna teach us the best ways to prepare our sales teams for success. Here's a sneak peek. Everybody's gonna to come to training because everybody's gotta learn the same process. Everybody is gonna learn the same skills. Everybody, you know, whether you're sales, customer service, and you're responsible for keeping customers, growing customers, you still need to understand how to ask questions, you still need to be a good, effective communicator. But then there's things that each, that each person is going to need. Small BizCast drops every other Tuesday. Follow us on our socials for business tidbits and special offers. Thanks again for our sponsors, the Miller-Haga Law Group and Mercury Document Imaging. And remember to support Fit for the Cause. And of course, thanks to my producer, Chaz Volk of Mr. Thrive Media. Couldn't do without you. Thank you so much for listening. Hot dog. It's a wonderful life.